This is the Sasquatch's Monsters of the Clubhouse. Tales of when athletes throw it all away and end up behind bars or worse. Hello and thanks very much for tuning in to Chapter 6 of Volume 3 of Monster the Clubhouse. The Scandals Volume. Um, so, Chapter 6 is Part 2 of the Black Sox Scandal. Um, just to quickly recap on what we covered on Monday. So, do you remember the players were judged to be not guilty and Landis was commissioned or was assigned the role of the first ever commissioner but long before the scandal broke many of baseball's owners had nursed long-standing grievances with the way the game was then governed by the national commission the scandal and the damage it caused to the game's reputation gave owners the resolve to make major changes to the governance of the sport the owner's original plan was to appoint the widely respected federal judge and noted baseball fan, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, to head a reformed three-member national commission. However, Landis made it clear to the owners that he would only accept an appointment as the game's sole commissioner, and even then, only on the condition that he be granted essentially unchecked power over the sport. The owners, desperate to clean up the game's image, agreed to his terms and vested him with virtually unlimited authority over every person in both the major and minor leagues. Upon taking office prior to the 1921 Major League Baseball season, one of Landis's first acts as commissioner was to use his new powers place the eight accused players on an ineligible list. A decision that effectively left them suspended indefinitely from all of organized professional baseball, although not from semi-pro barnstorming teams, which were very popular in the time, kind of roamed from small town to small town um, in the States. Following the players' acquittals, Landis was quick to quash any prospect that he might reinstate the implicated players. On August 3rd, 1921, the day after the players were acquitted, Judge Landis issued his own verdict. Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball claim. No player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers, where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball. Using a precedent that had previously been seen, Babe Burton, Hal Margaret, Gene Dale and Bill Rumler banned from the Pacific Coast League for fixing games. Landis made it clear that all eight accused players would remain on the ineligible list 
banning them from organised baseball. The commissioner took the line that while the players had been acquitted in court, there was no dispute they had broken the rules of baseball and none of them could ever be allowed back in the game if it were to regain the trust of the public. Comiskey supported Landis by giving the seven who remained under contract to the White Sox their unconditional release. Following the commissioner's statement, it was universally understood that all eight implicated White Sox players were to be banned from Major League Baseball for life. Two other players believed to be involved were also banned. One of them was Hall Chase, who had been effectively blackballed from the Majors in 1919 for a long history of throwing games and had spent 1920 in the minors. He was rumoured to have been a go-between for Gandal and the Gamblers, though it has never been confirmed. Regardless of this, it was understood that Landis' announcement not only formalised his 1919 blacklisting from the majors, but barred him from the minors as well. Landis, relying upon his years of experience as a federal judge and attorney, used this decision as the founding precedent of the reorganised league that the Commissioner of Baseball, in order to be the highest and final authority over the organised professional sport in the United States. He established the precedent that the Commissioner was invested by the league with complete power and the responsibility to determine the fitness or suitability of anyone, anything or any circumstance to be associated with professional baseball past, present and future. So the aftermath for the ineligible eight. So the eight members of the White Sox baseball team that were banned by Landis for the involvement in the fix are Arnold Chick Gandal, who's the first baseman, the lead of the players who are on the fix. He did not play in the majors in 1920, playing semi-pro ba- baseball instead. In a 1956 Sports Illustrated article, he expressed remorse for the scheme but wrote that the players had actually abandoned the scheme when it became apparent they were going to be watched closely. According to Gandal, the players' numerous errors were a result of fear that they were being watched. Eddie Chicote, pitcher, admitted involved in the fix. Oscar Happy Felch, centre fielder. Shoeless Joe Jackson, the star fielder and one of the best hitters in the game confessed in a sworn grand jury testimony to having accepted 5,000 cash from the gamblers. It was also Jackson's sworn testimony that he never met or spoke to any of the gamblers and was only told about the fix through conversations with other White Sox players. The other players that were in on the fix informed him that he would be getting $20,000 cash divided up in equal payments after each loss. Jackson's testimony was that he played to win the entire series and did nothing on the field to throw any of the games. His roommate, pitcher Lefty Williams, brought 5,000 cash up to the hotel room after losing game four in Chicago, 
and threw it down as they were packing to leave and travel back to Cincinnati. This was the only money that Jackson received at any time and he later recanted his confession and professed his innocence to no effect until his death in 1951. The extent of Jackson's collaboration with the scheme is hotly debated but I will touch on that later. Fred McMullen, utility infielder. McMullen would not have been included in the fix had he not overheard the other players' conversation. His role as a team scout may have had more impact on the fix since he saw minimal playing time in the series. Charles Swede Reisberg, shortstop. Reisberg was Gandel's assistant and the muscle of the playing group. He went 2 for 25 at the plate and committed 4 errors in the series. George Buck Weaver, third baseman. Weaver attended the initial meetings and since he did not go in on the fix, he knew about it. In an interview in 1956, Gandel said that it was Weaver's idea to get the money up front from the gamblers. Landis banished him on this basis, stating, Men associating with crooks and gamblers could expect no leniency. On January 13, 1922, Weaver unsuccessfully applied for reinstatement. Like Jackson, Weaver continued to profess his innocence to successive baseball commissioners to no effect. Claude Lefty Williams, pitcher, went 0 for 3 with a 6.63 ERA for the series. Only one other pitcher in baseball history, reliever George Frazier of the 1981 New York Yankees has ever lost three games in one World Series. The third game Williams lost was game eight. Baseball's decision to revert to a best of seven series in 1922 significantly reduced the opportunity for a pitcher to train three decisions in a series. Also banned was Joe Gedeon, second baseman for the St. Louis Browns. Gedeon placed bets since he learned of the fix from Reisberg, a friend of his. He informed Kamaski of the fix after the series in an effort to gain a reward. He was banned for life by Landis along with the eight White Sox and died in 1941. The indefinite suspensions imposed by Landis in relation to scandal were the most suspensions of any duration to be simultaneously imposed until 2013 when 13 player suspensions of between 50 and 211 games were announced following the doping related biogenesis scandal. Prior to finishing up I did just want to circle back to Shoeless Joe Jackson. So the extent of Joe Jackson's part in the conspiracy remains controversial. Jackson maintained that he was innocent. He had a series leading .375 batting average, including the series only home run, thrown out five base runners and handled 30 chances in the outfield with no errors. In general, players perform worse in games their team loses and Jackson batted worse in the five games that the White Sox lost with a batting average of .286 in those games. This was still an above average batting average. 
for reference the national and american leagues hit a combined 0.263 in the 1919 season and jackson hit 0.351 for the season fourth best in the major leagues his 0.356 career batting average is the third best in history surpassed only by his contemporaries ty cobb and roger Hornsby. three of his six rbis came in the losses including the aforementioned home run and a double in game eight when the reds had a large lead and the series was all but over still in that game a long foul ball was caught at the fence with the runners on second and third depriving jackson of a chance to drive in the runners one play in particular has been subjected to decades of scrutiny in the fifth inning of game four with a cincinnati player on second jackson fielded a single hit to left field and threw home this was cut off by jacody gandal another leader of the fix later admitted to yelling at jacody to intercept the throw the run scored and the Sox lost the game two zip jacody whose guilt is undisputed made two hour two hours in that fifth inning alone years later years later all of the implicated players said that jackson was never present at any of the meetings they had with the gamblers williams jackson's roommate later said that they only brought up jackson in hopes of giving them more credibility with the gamblers with Jackson at the time being one of the leading figures in Major League Baseball on the big stars. Now, I suppose so as discussed in chapter five, first part of the Black Sox scandal, this sporting scandal is unrivaled in its impact on popular culture. But before I get to the popular culture, quick aftermath of the Black Sox scandal. So after being banned Riseberg and several under other members of the Black Sox tried to organize a three-state barnstorming tour. However, they were forced to cancel those plans after Lanzas let it be known that anyone who played with or against them would also be banned from baseball for life. Then they announced plans to play a regular exhibition game every Sunday in Chicago, but the Chicago City Council threatened to cancel the license of any ballpark that hosted them. With seven of their best players permanently sidelined, the White Sox crashed into seventh place in 1921 and would not be a factor in a pennant race again until 1936, five years after the death of Gumski. They would not win another American League championship until 1959, a then record 40-year gap nor another World Series until 2005, prompting some to comment about a curse of the Black Sox. And now to the popular culture bit. So, after the grand jury returned its indictments, Charles Owens of the Chicago Daily News wrote a regretful tribute directed at Jackson, headlined, Say it ain't so, Joe. That phrase became legend, or another reporter later erroneously attributed to a child outside the courthouse. When Jackson left the criminal court building in the custody of a sheriff after telling his story to the grand jury, he found several hundred youngsters aged from 6 to 16 waiting for a glimpse of their idol. 
One, ch one child stepped up to the outfielder and grabbed his coat sleeve. Said, It ain't true, is it Joe? Yes kid, I'm afraid it is, Jackson replied. The boys opened the path for the ball player and stood in silence until he passed out of sight. In the film The Godfather Part 2, fictional gangster Hyman the Roth alludes to the scandal when he says, I loved baseball ever since Arnold Rothstein fixed the World Series in 1919. The 1989 film Field of Dreams, based upon the novel by W.P. Kinsler, discussed the scandal and featured two of the players involved, Joe Jackson, played by Ray Liotta, and Eddie Ciccoli, played by Steve Easton. And finally, in television, in the first season of Boardwalk Empire and the second season, this scandal is a large kind of subplot involving Arnold Rothstein, Lucky Luciano and their associates. There's countless other pop culture references to the Black Sox scandal but I just thought those were some of note. That is the story of the Black Sox scandal. The oldest on the list and one of the more memorable. I hope you've enjoyed the tale of the Black Sox. And as always Make sure to leave a, a comment, a like, a review, and click the links in the podcast description for affiliate offers for the Athletic and USA Sports. That code UK. Sasquatch out.